This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It was a typical New York City winter morning. Gray skies, dirty snow, and visible breath with each step you took. But for Special Agent Phil Scala, it would be a day to remember. As Scala sipped his morning coffee, one of his underlings came bursting into his office. With a grin on his face, he handed the Special Agent a manila folder. He told his boss... We found him. A few months earlier, a snitch had come to Scala's office in Queens with some information. The Gambino crime family had figured out that an NBA referee was betting on his own games. The informant didn't know who this ref was or how the Gambinos had gotten wind of the scheme, but he did know it was making them millions of dollars. Agent Scala couldn't let that stand. While it wasn't his job to take care of illegal gambling circles, it was his job to snuff out any Gambino profit centers. He set his team on the matter right away. With the NBA season getting started, each passing night was another chance for the Gambinos to line their pockets. It wasn't long until they got to the center of this corruption. And the man in the middle of it was Tim Donaghy. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. So let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second episode on Tim Donaghy an NBA referee who gambled money on games he officiated. Whether or not he was actively fixing them, his actions were a massive crime against his sport and in the eyes of the law. Last week, we studied Tim's descent into what became a full-blown gambling addiction. We saw him go from innocent golf course bets to high-stakes blackjack games and finally to betting on his own NBA games. This week, we'll follow Tim's budding partnership with professional gambler James Baba Batista. We'll also see how Tim gets ensnared in the FBI's web and how his whole operation 
comes crashing down. Tim Donaghy was in over his head. When he started betting on NBA games in late 2003, Tim got a rush unlike anything he had felt before. Nothing compared to it. Not making a big putt with over $1,000 on the line. Not winning a high-stakes poker game at the clubhouse. Not scoring on a huge blackjack hand at the Borgata Casino. No, betting on NBA games was like a shot of adrenaline straight into his bloodstream. If he got caught, the 36-year-old ref was guaranteed to lose his highly coveted position. And if his bosses were really pissed, he might even go to jail. But Tim figured that as long as he kept his circle tight, nobody would catch on to his activities. He was wrong. Tim's friend and gambling partner, Jack Concanon, placed their sports bets through an online betting agency called Play ASAP. Known as the animals, the Play ASAP bookies were all native Philly guys who knew Tim and Jack from their high school days. It wasn't long until they realized that Jack was hitting on way more of his NBA picks than any of his other wagers. For all his enthusiasm, Jack didn't make the best picks. So when he started picking the right team on over 70% of his NBA bets, it definitely caught the animals' attention. From there, it was only a matter of time until they figured out that Jack's picks were all on games officiated by his buddy, Tim Donaghy. But before the animals could do anything with this information, Play ASAP went out of business. Even as they scattered to the winds, former animal James Baba Batista was determined to use Tim's insider knowledge to his advantage. And in December 2006, he struck. Using a mutual friend named Tommy Martino as an intermediary, Batista set up a meeting with Tim on the night of December 12, 2006. He told Tim to stop placing bets through Tim's old friend, Jack Concanon. In return, Batista offered to give Tim $2,000 for every correct pick he gave to his new betting service. And if Tim picked wrong, Batista would eat the loss. According to Tim's personal account, he entered into the agreement with Batista with trepidation. As he tells it in his memoir, Personal Foul, Tim only agreed to the scheme because Batista claimed to be connected to the Gambino crime family. Worried about his family's safety, Tim felt he had no choice but to acquiesce to Batista's demands. However, Batista's version paints another picture. He claims that Tim was all too eager to get in on the scheme. In fact, Batista says that it was Tim who reached out to him. But regardless of what the circumstances were, the fact remains that in the middle of December 2006, a deal was made. And the next night, it went into effect. With Batista looking on from the stands, Tim's pick to bet on the Boston Celtics to cover the spread against the Philadelphia 76ers was right on the money. Tim steadfastly maintains that he remained neutral in his duties as a referee, even for games that he had picked. But he also admits that the thought of making $2,000 was impossible to erase from his mind. He knew that his deal with Batista put his family, his job, and his freedom in jeopardy. But Tim's gambling addiction overpowered all of those concerns. The money was obviously nice, but the thrill he got from the wager was even better. 
and Batista, fresh off a winning bet, immediately wanted Tim to make another pick. Although Tim wasn't working a game that night, he was confident that he could choose a winner. After looking over that night's referee assignments, Tim picked the San Antonio Spurs to beat the New Orleans Hornets. Spurs head coach Greg Popovich was known for his fearsome temper. Tim was confident that he would have his way with the relatively inexperienced officiating crew. Once again, Tim's pick was right. The Spurs blew out the Hornets 103 to 77, and Tim pocketed another two grand. It was the easiest money he had made in his whole life. He had read a piece of paper and made a phone call. Two hours later, he had a roll of $100 bills in his pocket. In his book, Tim uses this game to show he was capable of choosing the right games without being on the floor. It's his way of proving he didn't need to actively fix games to get the result he wanted. But that game didn't need any insider tips or special knowledge to make the right bet. The Spurs were one of the best teams in the league that year. Going into the matchup with New Orleans, they were 17-6. and Conversely, the Hornets were 10-10 and and were missing two of their key players, David West and Peja Stojakovic. The Spurs were favored by seven. It didn't take a genius to predict that they would cover the spread. But James Batista didn't care how Tim made his picks. All he cared about was whether or not they were right. And Tim delivered winners. He estimates that on average, he picked the correct team seven or eight times out of 10. Tim was so good that Batista boosted the payout for each correct pick from $2,000 to $5,000 after only six games. Whether or not Tim was actually fixing games, he did have a propensity for choosing the right team when he was part of the officiating crew. While his imprint wasn't felt on every game, there were instances where Tim made crucial calls that may have swung a result. On Valentine's Day 2007, the Toronto Raptors hosted the New Jersey Nets. Although the Nets were nine and a half point underdogs, former Raptor Vince Carter was determined to stick it to his old team. However, the superstar guard had a hard time establishing a rhythm that night. Although he played 38 out of a possible 48 minutes, Carter got whistled for four personal fouls. Tim Donaghy called every one of them. Despite Vince Carter's foul struggles, he helped the Nets mount a furious second-half comeback. Behind 11 third-quarter points from Carter, New Jersey was able to cut a 10-point halftime deficit to only three. With 1.47 left in the third quarter, the momentum was firmly in the Nets' favor. If they could keep it close going into the fourth quarter, New Jersey could get the win, or at the very least, cover the spread. Desperately needing a bucket to stem the bleeding, the Raptors dumped the ball to their star big man, Chris Bosh. Bosh already had 20 points on the night, and now he was matched up with Vince Carter in the post. Although he was a force to be reckoned with on offense, Carter wasn't exactly known for his defense. He was powerless to stop Bosh from backing him down and rising for a layup. As Carter tried to challenge the shot, he got whistled for a foul called by none other than Tim Donaghy. Unfortunately, we don't have tape to review whether or not the call was legit. However, we do know that Tim blew his whistle from the opposite side of the floor. Maybe the call was just that obvious. Maybe Tim was in the best position to see the play, despite being the furthest away from it. 
Or maybe he made the call in order to force Vince Carter to the bench and give the Raptors a little breathing room. Whatever the reasoning was, Bosch went to the line and made both free throws to give the Raptors a five-point edge. With Carter forced to the bench, the Raptors drove the lead back up to nine and eventually won 120-109, to narrowly covering the spread. Without that crucial third-quarter call, the Nets might have kept the score a little tighter. They may not have won, but at least everyone who bet on them to beat the spread would have been happy. But Tim had told James Baba Batista to pick the Raptors to cover the spread, and he was determined to make sure that pick was right. With picks like this, Batista was raking in the dough. After play ASAP disbanded in 2004, Batista started running his own sort of gambling hedge fund. Known as a mover, he would take his client's money and use it to place bets with various bookmaking services. Armed with Tim's surefire winners, he was making them a fortune. But it wasn't as simple as putting money on a certain result and calling it a day. Making real money took true artistry. NBA betting lines aren't set in stone. They're dictated by how bookmakers think people will bet. In order to entice gamblers on either side of a result, sports books try to make the line as hard to call as possible. So if they see people are betting too heavily in one direction, they'll shift the line to make it more enticing to bet the other way. Until the game starts, the line can constantly move. James Batista knew that if he dumped a huge sum on Tim's picks, people would catch on. Other gamblers would start putting money on his side of the bet, and the line might shift out of his favor. Even worse, someone might figure out that he had insider knowledge. If word got out that certain NBA bets were surefire winners, Tim's picks might become useless. And if the wrong person found out, they could all go to jail. To prevent this sort of disaster from happening, Batista had to tow a very thin line. When bets opened in the morning, he would put around $50,000 against the team Tim had picked. This sort of head fake helped throw off would-be copycats and could also shift the line even more in Batista's favor. Once it got closer to game time, Batista put in $200,000 bets on Tim's actual picks with various bookies. While that was a lot of money, it wasn't so much that it would draw unwanted attention. Or so he thought. Unbeknownst to Tim and Batista, the cat was out of the bag two months before they even started their partnership in December 2006. After the dissolution of Play ASAP in 2004, Jack Concannon started placing their basketball bets with a different bookie. Presumably, this bookie's lips were too loose for his own good, and the scheme had leaked to a couple of thugs within the Gambino organization. But the Gambinos weren't the only ones catching wind of illegal basketball gambling. In October 2006, an informant visited Special Agent Phil Scala at his office in Queens, New York. He had heard rumblings that the Gambino crime family was making a fortune betting on games officiated by a dirty NBA ref. Within six months, the FBI would have Tim Donaghy squarely in their sights. And once they had him in their grip, they wouldn't let go. Coming up, Tim faces a reckoning. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In December 2006, 39-year-old Tim Donaghy entered into a betting partnership with professional gambler James Baba Batista. For every correct gambling pick Tim gave Batista, he would receive $2,000 in cash. At first, the arrangement worked like a charm. Tim's picks were correct an incredible seven or eight out of every 10 times. And with some clever manipulation of the system, Batista figured he was doing enough to stay under the FBI's radar. Little did the two men know, they were dead men walking. In October 2006, two months before Tim and Batista started working together, FBI Special Agent Phil Scala got word that a corrupt NBA ref was betting on his own games. Unbeknownst to this ref, the notorious Gambino crime family had gotten word of the scheme. They were making millions of dollars off of his picks. Special Agent Scala had led the task force in charge of investigating the Gambinos for over three decades. Eager to get rid of this major profit center, he dedicated significant resources toward identifying this mysterious official. By analyzing the phone records of gamblers associated with the Gambinos, Scala's team was able to slowly inch closer and closer towards the source. Before too long, they had identified Tim Donaghy. By February 2007, Tim and Batista's scheme was reaching its pinnacle. But that same month, a grand jury was convened to begin the case against them. Although it was too early to arrest Tim and Batista, Scala had gathered enough evidence against them to begin discussing whether or not they should be charged with a crime. But as the grand jury deliberated, Tim and Batista's partnership came to an abrupt halt. Batista had turned to snorting cocaine in order to keep up with the demands of constantly monitoring betting lines. No longer able to cope with his punishing lifestyle, he entered rehab in March. Tim was glad to take a break from the betting. Although he wasn't using drugs, the stress from all the deception was getting to him, too. On top of avoiding the law, he was worried about avoiding the NBA. The league had already investigated him for gambling once before. The last thing Tim needed was having yet another P.I. dig into his personal life. And while the NBA hadn't gotten anything on him, it had been a close call. He was ready to fly under the radar for a while. His last bet with Batista was on March 18, 2007. For the time being, he intended to keep it that way. He wanted to spend more time with his family, rededicate himself to his wife Kim and their four daughters. By that point, the feds had all the evidence they needed. On June 1, 2007, Tim was about to tee off his first golf game of the offseason but his swing was interrupted by his ringing cell phone. Tim's stomach dropped when he saw the caller ID. It was Tommy Martino, James Batista's intermediary. Tim and Martino did speak from time to time, 
but it was usually about Tim's NBA picks. Rarely was there any small talk between them. He wondered if Batista was out of rehab. Maybe he wanted to get their partnership up and running again before the season started. But from the moment he picked up, Tim knew something was off. Martino was nervous, so much so that he could barely form a coherent sentence. Tim's paranoia kicked into overdrive. He gave Martino one of his golfing partner's cell numbers. He didn't want whatever they talked about next to get traced back to him. When Martino called him back, what he said made Tim go numb. Yes, Batista was out of rehab, but that wasn't the problem. Martino had talked to the FBI. Tim was worried that the authorities were listening in to their call, but he had to know what Martino had said. Careful not to admit to any wrongdoing, he asked what had happened. Martino swore to Tim that he hadn't implicated Tim in anything. He said that he had pled the fifth to the grand jury. Tim stopped him right there. Having a few conversations with the feds was one thing. Testifying in front of a grand jury was another matter entirely. That meant that the case was past the evidence-gathering phase. No, if a grand jury had been convened, the investigators already thought they had enough to convict him. No matter what he said, Tim knew that Martino wouldn't go to jail to protect him. The cat was out of the bag. Now, all Tim could do was sit back and wait for the authorities to come for him. The peace and tranquility Tim had been enjoying immediately went out the window. The anticipation was killing him, quite literally. He couldn't sleep, couldn't eat, and he lost an alarming amount of weight. He had no idea how the FBI would come for him. He hoped it would be in the form of a polite phone call, asking him to come to one of their offices for an interview, but he knew there was also the chance that they could barge into his house at any moment. If that happened, Tim knew his family had to be prepared for it. It was only a matter of time until the extent of his gambling came to light. If his wife and daughters were going to find out about it, he wanted them to hear it from him. The moment of truth came on a Friday night in June 2007. After returning from a dinner party, Tim told Kim everything. How it had all started with some innocent golf course wagers, the move from the country club to the Borgata Casino, the initial football bets with the bookie Pete Ruggieri, and worst of all, gambling on NBA basketball. Much to Tim's surprise, Kim was far more understanding than he thought she would be. He thought she was just happy to finally have an honest conversation. But Tim also suspected that Kim didn't understand the true significance of what he had just told her. He knew that when the full extent of his troubles came to light, she would realize just how serious the problem truly was. Two days after talking to Kim, Tim contacted criminal defense attorney Greg Hagopian. Tim knew Hagopian from their Florida country club. He admired the 43-year-old lawyer's reputation for his courtroom savvy and willingness to get nasty. He was the exact sort of legal counsel Tim wanted when the going got tough. Hagopian spoke to Tommy Martino's attorney and confirmed Tim's worst fear. The FBI knew he had illegally bet on NBA basketball with James Batista. Even worse, his picks had indirectly given the Gambinos millions of dollars. 
Hagopian advised Tim to sit tight and keep his mouth shut until they could get all the facts. But Tim didn't want to twiddle his thumbs and wait to get arrested. He knew there would be no getting out of this mess in one piece. However, Batista wasn't talking, and Martino wasn't being much help either. Tim figured that if he cooperated, the authorities would look more kindly on him. He instructed Hagopian to set up a meeting with the people in charge of the investigation. On June 15, 2007, Tim sat down with Assistant U.S. Attorney Tom Siegel, along with FBI Special Agents Phil Scala and Paul Harris. The meeting was a proffer session. Siegel would be evaluating Tim's usefulness as a cooperating defendant. If he determined that Tim was completely forthright, it could mean a lighter punishment. Tim didn't hold anything back. Over the course of five hours, he meticulously described his entire journey from golf course bets with Jack Cannon to his NBA gambling partnership with James Batista. Siegel, Scala, and Harris were impressed with Tim's honesty. But Siegel told him that the case was too big to let Tim go without charging him with something. After all, Tim had only come to them after learning that the FBI had detected his illegal gambling activities. No matter how helpful he was being now, the fact remained that Tim would not have spoken to them out of his own volition. After meeting with the authorities, Tim headed back to Florida with an even heavier weight on his shoulders. He was going to be charged for a serious crime. When he got home, Kim finally realized the severity of the situation. After a long silence, she broke down in tears. This time, there were no comforting words or promises of weathering the storm together. She called Tim a selfish jerk. She asked him how he could do something like that to her, to their kids. Tim had no answer. As Tim awaited more news on his case, Phil Scala decided to tell the NBA about the investigation. While it wasn't Scala's job to clean up corruption in professional basketball, he still wanted NBA Commissioner David Stern to know what was going on with one of his referees. Plus, maybe there were other referees betting on games and inadvertently funding the mob, too. On June 21st, six days after meeting with Tim, Scala and his boss, Kevin Hallinan, went to NBA headquarters in Manhattan. The Donaghy incident was Hallinan's second experience with a professional sports betting scandal. He was Major League Baseball's head of security during the Pete Rose scandal in the late 1980s. If anyone knew how severe a betting scandal could be on a sport, it was him. Scala and Hallinan met with NBA Commissioner David Stern, Deputy Commissioner Adam Silver, NBA President Joel Litvin, and Senior Vice President of Security Bernie Tolbert. Stern was livid. He couldn't believe the NBA hadn't caught him when the league investigated him back in 05. The FBI agents told Stern that Tim Donaghy might only be the tip of the iceberg. Although Tim swore he was the only referee betting on NBA games, Hallinan and Scala weren't so sure. Until they could fully complete the investigation, they asked the NBA executives to keep the information to themselves. Meanwhile, Tim was back in Florida, waiting for any new developments. He correctly assumed that the FBI had spoken to the NBA, but had yet to hear from either organization. He knew that it was only a matter of time until the NBA terminated his employment. 
Tim cherished his job as a referee. He would have done anything to keep working in the NBA, but he knew he had made his bed. Now he had to lie in it. Rather than going through the embarrassing process of getting fired, Tim quietly sent a resignation letter to the league office on July 9th, 2007. After 13 years, Tim's days as an NBA referee were over. But his problems were just beginning. Coming up, the hammer comes down on Tim Donaghy. Now, the conclusion of our story. In June 2007, 40-year-old NBA referee Tim Donaghy met with federal prosecutors to tell them about his role in a betting partnership with James Baba Batista. Although he earned brownie points for his cooperation, Tim's crimes were too severe to escape punishment. Knowing it was only a matter of time until he was fired, Tim decided to resign from the NBA on July 9th, 2007. At first, his friends and colleagues were shocked. To them, his resignation came out of nowhere. But 11 days after he resigned, the world learned the truth. On July 20th, 2007, the New York Post ran a story with the headline, Fixed, Ref in Mob Betting Scandal. For most of Tim's friends and colleagues, it was the first time they were learning of his illegal gambling habits. The revelations the article contained were truly explosive. The story described how Tim had allegedly made calls to affect the outcome of NBA games numbering in the double digits. This information deeply upset Tim. He was willing to admit to betting on his own games, but he never said he fixed them. The NBA was determined to find out whether that was true. In August 2007, Commissioner Stern hired former federal prosecutor Lawrence Petowitz to conduct a thorough review of NBA refereeing practices. In addition to examining whether or not Tim had fixed any games, Petowitz was tasked with finding out if any other refs were corrupt. But his work was hampered by the FBI's ongoing investigation into Tim's gambling and any connection he might have to the Gambino crime family. Because the government's work was still in process, Phil Scala and his team refused to share any of their information with Pedowitz. And Tim wouldn't talk to Pedowitz either. With his fate still undecided, he didn't want to do anything to upset the FBI. After two more meetings with the FBI and federal prosecutors, Tim's first court hearing was set for August 15, 2007. While Tim had given his full cooperation in the case, his fellow conspirators, James Batista and Tommy Martino, were less forthcoming. Tim hoped their silence would make him look even better in the prosecutor's eyes. He had told the FBI everything, not just his own gambling, but describing the betting culture within the NBA refereeing community as well. According to Tim, he told Phil Scala that 50 of the NBA's 60 referees engaged in some sort of gambling. He insisted that none of them were betting on NBA games, not with him anyway. As Scala's team began the exhaustive process of following up on these accusations, Tim got ready to put himself at the federal government's mercy. On August 15, 2007, Tim Donaghy appeared in federal district judge Carol Amon's courtroom. He readily pled guilty to charges of conspiracy to commit wire fraud and conspiracy to engage in wagering over state lines. Sentencing was scheduled for November 9th of that year. 
According to Tim, as he flew home to Florida, the man sitting next to him struck up a conversation. As they chatted, the man mentioned he was headed to Las Vegas in a few days. Not knowing who Tim was, the man asked Tim if he liked to gamble himself. Tim could only shake his head and say no, at least not anymore. The man laughed, assuming Tim had made a few bad bets and that was it. If he knew the full extent of Tim's problems, he wouldn't have found it so funny. Now that Tim's gambling was in the public eye, he found himself subjected to intense scrutiny. As the media examined every detail of his life, they uncovered yet another shameful moment for the disgraced referee. On August 27, 2007, the New York Post ran a story with the headline, Dirty Ref's Sideline Gal Eyed by Feds. According to the article, Tim had a female friend in Arizona who might have also been his mistress. Evidently, federal investigators were trying to speak to her as part of Tim's case. When Kim confronted him about the article, Tim vehemently claimed that he never had any sort of sexual relationship with the woman. Sure, he had given her and a friend tickets to a game or two, but he insisted they were just friends and nothing more. However, he did fail to mention the part in the article that claimed while he was on the road in Arizona, he had slept in the woman's hotel room on more than one occasion. Whatever the truth was, Kim didn't care. Enough was enough. She took the kids and left, and 10 days after the New York Post article ran, she filed for divorce. Alone and abandoned, Tim's life was in shambles, and he hadn't even been sentenced for his crimes. Ultimately, Tim would have to wait nearly 10 months to learn his fate. Because of complications in Batista and Martino's separate cases, Tim's sentencing was pushed back from November to June 29, 2008. If he was punished to the fullest extent of the law, Tim could be sentenced to prison for up to 25 years. Tim hoped that since he cooperated, Judge Amon would go easy on him. But she was receiving intense pressure from the NBA to make sure Tim faced significant repercussions for his actions. As the sentencing date approached, Tim's lawyer informed him that he had another problem. The league wanted the judge to order over $1 million in restitution as part of Tim's sentence. He was convinced that the league wanted to heap even more punishment on Tim because of his refusal to participate in the Pedowitz investigation. If the judge agreed to the NBA's demands, Tim would have no way to repay them. The money from his officiating career and gambling winnings was all gone. After his legal fees and divorce settlement, Tim had been sleeping on a friend's couch for most of the year. Going to prison would almost be a relief. The night before his sentencing, Tim's parents asked him to spend the night at their home in New Jersey. Originally, he had planned on facing his fate alone, but he couldn't turn down this olive branch of love and support. After dinner, Tim went to his father's office to send a few emails and call his daughters for the last time as a free man. As he looked at the photos lining the walls, Tim was filled with pride for his father's legacy. In his career as an NCAA basketball referee, Jerry Donaghy was known as a pillar of the college basketball community. Tim looked for the framed newspaper article announcing that he was following in the family business of professional refereeing. The day it had gone up on Jerry's wall 
was one of the proudest moments of Tim's life. And now it was gone. Jerry had taken it down. The full weight of what Tim had done came crashing down on him. He had betrayed his father. He had betrayed the game he loved. He had betrayed himself. He was ready to face the music. The next morning, Tim's parents drove him to the courthouse in New York. Standing across from Judge Amon, he was sentenced to 15 months in prison in order to pay $217,000 in restitution to the NBA. Although his cooperation hadn't kept him out of prison, it had yielded a lesser sentence. After sentencing, Tim was ordered to report to the Minimum Security Federal Prison Camp in Pensacola, Florida on September 23, 2008. But the conditions in the camp were still a far cry from the relative luxury Tim had known all his life. Many of Tim's fellow inmates were less than pleased to meet him. Several of them were still mad they lost bets on NBA games Tim officiated. They swore to make his time at the prison camp a living hell. Worse yet, Tim tried to get help on his gambling addiction by speaking with a warden about the rampant gambling in the camp. Tim didn't want to succumb to its temptations. But rather than offering Tim counseling, the warden simply cracked down on the betting going on within his camp. Needless to say, the inmates were not happy. In the fall of 2008, Tim earned a momentary reprieve when the NBA's Pedowitz report was finally released. The investigation covered the allegations against Tim, as well as NBA refereeing culture as a whole. Though it did not exonerate Tim's actions by any means, the report was unable to contradict the government's conclusion that there is no evidence that Donaghy ever intentionally made a particular ruling during a game in order to increase the likelihood that his gambling pick would be correct. Although the language was far from definitive, it was good enough for NBA Commissioner David Stern. He didn't push for any further investigation into Tim's refereeing habits. Buoyed by the report's conclusions, Tim served out his sentence and was released from the prison camp on November 4, 2009. Now 42, Tim would never work as a referee again. These days, he lives in a nondescript townhouse in Sarasota, Florida. He makes his money off of various rental properties. He has no official role in the NBA. But his specter still looms large over the sport. In early 2019, ESPN revisited the Donaghy controversy and conducted its own investigation into Tim's story. The ensuing article by Scott Eden did not conclusively prove that Tim had fixed games, but Eden was pretty sure he did. It's important to note that in order to help a team cover a spread, Tim wouldn't necessarily have to manufacture calls out of thin air. Basketball is notoriously difficult to officiate, with many gray areas that are open to a ref's interpretation. A game's fate can hang on a single call. And when the moment called for it, Tim certainly seemed happy to exercise his authority. The NBA vehemently fought against the article's allegations. It stood by the Pedowitz report's conclusions and claimed ESPN relied more on anecdotal evidence than actual analysis. Even after more than 10 years since he was caught, the Tim Donaghy scandal remains a hot-button issue in the NBA. 
Judging by the league's heated response to the ESPN article, questions circling around NBA officiating won't go away anytime soon. With athletes getting bigger, stronger, and faster, the game is harder to call than ever. What might seem like an obvious call from your television screen isn't so easy to spot when there's a scrum of seven-footers battling around the rim. But it's not easy to forgive a referee when a single wrong call could decide the final result. And thanks to Tim Donaghy, the game will forever be clouded by the possibility that the men and women charged with enforcing the rules are acting outside of them. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, and Travis Clark. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Alex Benedin and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 